to remind you of our Easter contest that is going on. We want you to encourage folks to come, bring people with you. Again, they count every service they come. You don't have to wait till Easter Sunday. But, uh, in fact, you'll get more points by bringing them several times before Easter. So bring them, bring them, bring them. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 15. Apostle Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Sanctify the Lord in your heart. Be ready. Everyone say, Be ready. Everyone say, Always. Now, what are we supposed to be ready always for? To give an answer. To whom? To every man that asks a reason of the hope. We should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks. Well, praise God. Amen. And that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to finish up this whole series we've been teaching on the Godhead. And I want to finish it up by trying to give you answers to a few more questions this morning. But we put our Bibles down. Let's lift our hands, lift our hearts, lift our voices to the Lord and ask him to help us today. Can we do that, everybody? Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let's worship him one more time before we're seated this morning. Let's worship the Lord from the depths of our heart. Let's worship him. God, we praise you. We magnify you. We glorify you. Hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. I'm going to have to hurry through my review this morning, but I do believe it is important that we, in each of the services where we're dealing with the Godhead, again, the questions that we are going to try to answer uh, are going to, uh, the answers, I should say, the answers are going to be based upon the principles that I've taught in the previous lessons. So that's why even in these lessons uh, trying to provide answers, I still want to go through the principles that we have taught concerning the Godhead. And also, I just want you to hear it again. I want to stress it to the point that I can ask any one of you at any time to tell me the four principles, and you can quote them and cite the Scripture. Oh, boy, the amens were weak on the first one, but they're really weak on that second one. Hallelujah. Now, you know, I, I taught last week or sometime 
about just creating a chain reference in your Bible. If you could just start at what? Nobody knows. Where are you supposed to start? Start Romans. Romans what? 1 and 20. Thank you. Romans 1 and 20. You can start there and then write your scriptures in the column from there. Then you always know where to go. And you got your principles, all right? So let's just talk about it. The reason you start at Romans 1 and 20 is because the, the common teaching, theologians, scholars tell you that the Godhead is too complicated. Uh, it is too mysterious for you to really comprehend. So start in Romans 1 and 20 and um, tell them what Paul said about the Godhead. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Are what? Clearly seen. They're clearly seen. Being understood being by what? things. Wait a minute. Being what? Good. All right. So they're clearly seen. They're understood. By the things that are made. Uh-huh. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul clearly said the Godhead, the Godhead is clearly seen. The Godhead is understood, and there is no excuse for not clearly seeing it and understanding. So if what you teach about the Godhead is too mysterious and complicated to be understood, then what you're teaching is not in accordance with the Scripture. If you can't explain it simply, then you're not explaining it right. Okay, so and I've never yet met anybody who believes in the doctrine of the Trinity that would tell me they could explain it. Nobody. I don't care if they've got a Ph.D., a D.D. I don't care what they've got. Everyone that I've ever talked to has told me they cannot explain the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a mystery. It's too complicated. It's too complex. You can't understand it. There's three, but there's one. I'm telling you, even a kindergartner knows that's not right. Three is not one. All right? So, so... The doctrine of the Godhead ought to be clearly seen, it ought to be understood, and there is no excuse for you not clearly seeing it and understanding it. All right, the four principles, very quickly, we go through them again. Principle number one, Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hero Israel, Hero the Israel, Lord our God, Lord is, our God one Lord. is one Lord. There is only one God. First principle, foremost principle, Jesus said, most important commandment in all the scriptures. There's only one God. Whatever else we believe, it cannot contradict that. Principle number one. Principle number two. John chapter four, verse 24. God is a spirit. God is a spirit. There's only one God, and that God is a spirit, not a person. That's the biggest problem with the doctrine of the Trinity is they've defined the Godhead as persons. And God is not a person. God is a spirit. Now, you can read the context. Jesus was speaking specifically of the Father. And so he's saying that the Father is a spirit. Every time we read Father, we must think 
Spirit. And we talked about the, the attributes of this Spirit. First of all, it is everywhere or omnipresent. The Spirit is everywhere. Right? We proved that from the Scripture. I don't have time to go back through all those Scriptures, but it's there in the lessons. That, God, that, that the Spirit of God is everywhere. All right? The Spirit of God is invisible. It cannot be seen. In fact, we are going to go back and read some of those scriptures today. As we get into uh, our very first question today, we're going to deal with some of those verses to prove to you again that no man has ever seen God. Because God is a spirit. All right. So God's a spirit. Principle number two, the Father is a spirit. Principle number three, Luke 1 and 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, Before or therefore also that that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The angel clearly said that what was born of Mary was the Son of God. Mary did not give birth to a spirit. Mary did not give birth to an eternal being. Mary gave birth to a fleshly body. And so... That which was born of Mary is the Son of God. So when we talk about the Son, we need to think flesh. We talk about the Father, we think spirit. We talk about the Son, we think flesh. All right? Then we bring it all together with principle number four from 2 Corinthians 5 and 19, which says, To wit, that God was in Christ. God, God, that's the Father, that's the... Spirit was in Christ. That's the Son. That's the flesh. And here is the Godhead. That the Spirit was in the flesh, reconciling the world to what? Himself. Singular. One person. One individual. God, the Father, the Spirit, was in the flesh, the Son, reconciling the world to Himself. Right. Spirit in the flesh, not two separate persons. Right. All right. That's the Godhead. Jesus Christ, the man, was both God and man. He was both God and man. On the outside, he was man. On the inside, he was God. And so he could speak as a man or he could speak as God. He could act as a man or he could act as God. We call that a dual nature. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. All right? That's the only duality that we find. Not two persons, but flesh and spirit. Okay? Now, these are important principles. And and um, the reason that, that I've read for you here in 1 Peter 3.15 Again, just to introduce or reintroduce what I'm doing today. Hopefully going to finish this today. Um, let's go back and read 1 Peter 3.15. I'm trying to hurry through some of this so I can get right to the questions. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15, Peter said this. But, uh, but sanctify the Lord God. Uh, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with 
uh, meekness and fear. All right, so so we pointed out to you this is an apostolic mandate. This is a command from the Apostle Peter, the same one who told us to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name and receive the Holy Ghost, also told us to be ready always to be able to answer every man. I don't know why we think we only have to obey Acts 2.38. We don't have to obey 1 Peter 3.15. I'm telling you, we do. We also explain this scripture to you that really what is being said in this verse is not just that you must have the ability to do it, but you must also have the willingness to do it. You must be able and willing to answer every question that you are asked. And I'm telling you, church, I'm telling you, If you'll use these four principles, every question can be answered. Every question can be answered. All right? So, we've gone through that. Let's get to our first one today. Uh, And I only plan to deal with two today. That's, uh, And I'm really honestly going to be a little pressed for time just to get both of those in. I don't want to rush this too much. But but, um, uh, the book of Acts chapter 7 tells the story of Stephen, who was preaching to uh, the Israelites. They got mad. They decided to put him to death. And and so they used stones uh, to throw at him, to kill him, to put him to death. And while he is being stoned, he sees something. Now, the Trinitarians tell you that he saw the Father and the Son when he looked up into heaven. Let's look at the scripture now, Acts chapter 7, verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. All right, so they say right here, it's very clear, Jesus and God are there together. You've got two separate persons right there. I'm telling you, that's not at all what this scripture says. Now, do you believe that no scripture will contradict another scripture? If you believe that Stephen saw both Jesus and God, then you've got a problem with other scriptures. Let's go back and review those. We taught those several weeks ago. John 1 and 18 says this. I'm going to go through these quickly. John 1 and 18 says, No man man has seen God at any time. No man. Does that include Stephen? At any time. Does that include this incident in Acts? No man's seen God at any time. All right? That's very clear. First John 4 and 12. No man no has, man seen, God at has any time. seen God at any time. Do you see this? Do you understand this? First Timothy 6.16. Now. 1 Timothy 6.16. Who wrote 1 Timothy? Paul. When we first meet Paul, where is he? He's right here in Acts chapter 7 in this story that we are about to talk about. Now, he wasn't called Paul then. He was called Saul. But it's the same man. He was there when Stephen was put to death. Does everybody understand? 
Paul witnessed this. He saw it firsthand. And yet after, because Paul wasn't even converted yet. So when he wrote to Timothy, it was after his conversion. After he was there, when Stephen had his vision, heard what Stephen said, Paul picked up a pen and wrote this, 1 Timothy 6.16. Who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man whom hath seen. no man hath seen, nor can, nor can see. Paul was there when Stephen was put to death. And yet Paul said, first of all, nobody can see God. And I want you to know because that nobody has seen God and that nobody includes Stephen. So whatever Stephen saw in that vision, he did not see Jesus and God. Because no man has seen God and no man can see God. Because God's invisible. And God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. If you could see something that's everywhere, you wouldn't be able to see anything else. Right? If you suddenly saw the air. If the air suddenly turned purple. All you would see is purple. Right? You couldn't see anything else. You wouldn't be able to see the person sitting in front of you. So if you saw God who is everywhere, there's no way you'd be able to see him and Jesus. All right? No man has ever seen God. God's everywhere. Now, let's, let's talk about this verse again. Uh, I don't know if I, I had you. Uh, I didn't. But I want you to go back and get for me. Acts 7.55 again. Uh, it's, it should be there on your list, but just back up a couple scriptures from where we were. Acts 7 and 55. Uh, I want to I want to read that again. But he being but he full, being of, full of the Holy Ghost, Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven and, and saw the glory he of saw, God. Wait a minute. He saw what? He doesn't say he saw God. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand. Standing on the right God. hand of God. So they say, well, right there, he's on the right hand of God. All right, all right, all right. Um who's brilliant? Which one of you young men are brilliant? Oh, nobody all of a sudden. Nobody. Nobody. Logan, since you're volunteering everybody else, you come here. What happens when you volunteer somebody else, all right? All right, now look. The air is everywhere, right? Okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you right now to go stand on the right side of the air. Which side is the right side? Okay, well then go stand on the left side of the air. Why is there no right side or left side? Because it's everywhere. Thank you. And God is 
everywhere. So where's the right side of God? And where's the left side of God? When the Bible speaks of the right hand of God, it's not talking about a palm and five fingers. All right? We should always let the Scripture interpret the Scripture, right? Right? I'm not getting enough response out of that. Always let the Scripture interpret the Scripture, right? Okay, so don't just tell me that this means Jesus was standing in God's right hand, literally. Show me a scripture to define for me where Jesus is. And I'm going to tell you that before Jesus ever ascended into heaven, he had already told us what this meant. He had already explained it before he ever ascended. And it's, it's recorded in both Matthew and Mark. Let's read it, Matthew 26 and 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, never, never, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye hereafter see, shall you see the, son the Son of, of Man, man sitting, on the, sitting right hand of power. on the right hand of power. On the right hand of power. On the right hand of power. Power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark records the very same thing in Mark chapter 14, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. Jesus said, I am. And you shall see, you the, shall son of see the Son of Man right sitting of on the right hand of power. You got to understand that to the Jews, the term the right hand was a was a symbol. It was it was a, a concept to them. It wasn't a physical right hand. But when they spoke of the right hand, they were talking about somebody's power. In fact, even today, we still talk about so-and-so is my right-hand man. What do we mean by that? Well, that's the person that we go to. That's the person that's going to do the work. That's the one we're going to depend on, right? The right hand. In fact, when you go back to the book of Exodus, and the Bible says that God parted the Red Sea, and the children of Israel came through on the other side. They picked up the, uh, Miriam picked up the tambourine. They began to sing. You know what they were singing? Thy right hand, O God, hath saved us. Thy right hand. Now, look, they did not see. These four fingers and the thumb and the palm. Come down and karate chop the river and scoot the waters back. But when they said your right hand saved us, what they were saying was we were saved by your power, by your might. And Jesus said, what's going to happen when I ascend off of this earth? The next time that I'm seen, you're going to see me sitting in the right hand of God's power. You're not going to see Jesus and God, but you're going to see the glory that was there. And when Stephen looked up into heaven, he didn't see two different people. He didn't see the Father on the throne and the Son in his right hand. That's not what he saw. He looked up and he saw one, and his name was Jesus. But when he saw him, he wasn't just like any other man, but all of the glory of God and all of the power of God was associated with that one that was on the throne. You don't think that's what he saw. You should just keep reading a little further in that chapter. 
Because in verse 55, he looked up steadfastly. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. But in verse 59, listen to this. And they stoned Stephen. They stoned Stephen. Calling upon calling, God. Wait a minute, calling upon whom? God. Calling upon whom? God. And saying, Lord and Jesus. And saying, Lord Jesus, receive my, receive spirit. my spirit. When he looked up into heaven and started calling out to God, he didn't say Father and Son. He called one name. When he called out to God, he called Jesus, receive my spirit. Oh, hallelujah. I'm here to tell you, my friend, there's not two or three in heaven. There's only one God, and Jesus is his name. Oh, praise God. All right. I've got 30 minutes to get through this last one. All right. I think I can do it. I feel like Thomas the engine or whoever it was, the little engine that could. What What, what is that story? I get maybe getting mixed up here, but little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. All right. We'll find out if we're going down the other side after a while saying, I thought I could. I thought I could. <laughs> All right. All right. If I wouldn't be so foolish, we'd get more done. All right. So let's go to this last one here. Where, where, where they say there's no question that here we see two persons, both father and son. Let's go now to the book of Matthew, and uh, Matthew 27 and verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama. Yeah. Eli, 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 Lama Shavakthani. Hey, that's pretty good. That is to say, my God, my God. Stop, stop. I'm going to tell on you. He came in the office. They said, now tell me again how to say those words. How do you pronounce that? <laughs> so I spelled it out phonetically for him there. So he's been practicing. That's pretty good. Pretty good. All right. All right. I'm sorry. Go back and read that again. Eli, 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 Lama Shabachthani. That's pretty good. All right. That's, that's close enough. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All right. So the claim of the Trinitarians is this, that the Father sent the Son to die for us. And while the Son was on the cross, the Father turned his back on the Son. And... The son died, forsaken by the father. Now, that's what they teach. I've already pointed out to you that, to me, that's not a picture of love. For one person in the Godhead to say, these people need to be saved, to look to the next person that God had said, you go down and save them. And while you're saving them, I'm not even going to watch. That's not love. That's not love. Honestly, that sounds more like a coward to me. Really? I mean, I, 
I'm just being honest with you. If and, and the example that I used that day was if, if this building caught on fire and I escaped and one other person with me and, and I hollered back in and nobody else could get out and I'm standing outside and I'm hollering back in, don't worry, I love you, I'm going to make sure you get saved. So I turn to whoever else escaped with me and I say, go in there and get them. And while you do, I'm going to turn my back. I can't watch. There is nobody that's going to applaud me as a hero for sending somebody else to pluck them out of the fire. But being a human, I know I can't run into the fire. But if I put on an asbestos suit, fireproof, I could come in here and get you out. And what I've taught you is this, God is a spirit. But in order for us to be saved, there had to be the shedding of blood. A spirit doesn't have blood. So as the spirit, he could not fulfill that requirement. So he put on a suit, a body of flesh, and he stepped down here to where we are. And he didn't have to hide his eyes while somebody else did the dirty work. He came down and did it for us himself. He never quit being God just like I wouldn't quit being pastor just because I put on an asbestos suit. He didn't stop being God when he put on flesh. There was just a new dimension to this God. He now had something he did not have before. A human body. And he sacrificed that body for our salvation. All right? But they teach that the Father sent the Son, turned his head away, and that that's what Jesus is saying when he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want to tell you, church, we, again, have got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Now, first of all, let me tell you this. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I don't know, usually I'm in such a hurry when I'm teaching on this, I don't know that I've really brought this Scripture into it, but I, I want to do it today. I want to take the time and bring this Scripture in. Let's read what the Apostle said. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew not or who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Alright, now look at this. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Let me tell you, we're talking about the God of heaven who is holy, who is sinless, who is blameless. And when he took on human flesh, that flesh was sinless. And he had never known sin. He'd never experienced sin. He'd never committed sin. He'd been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And I'm going to tell you that what happened on the cross, and I, I, I wish, I really do wish that I had a little bit more time to explain all this. I'm going to try to do it quickly. But some months ago, in fact, well over a year ago now, uh, I taught 
uh, a lesson here on the laying on of hands. And one of the things that I showed you was in the Old Testament, uh, when they had the sacrificial offering, that the elders would come and lay their hands upon the head of that bull, and they would then call the sins of Israel over that animal. And by laying their hands upon that animal, they were transferring their sins to the sinless animal. And the animal now carried the sins and was put to death. And they exchanged their guilt for the animal's innocence. Right? And I'm telling you, that's what had to happen to the man, Christ Jesus. When he came to this earth, he was sinless. But the law says the soul that sins has to die. So that means every one of us and everyone that has ever been and everyone that will ever be outside of Jesus Christ, we were all born sinners. And therefore, we were destined to die. But one came who was sinless, and he was made to be sin for us. He became the sacrificial lamb where our sins were put on him. And he bore the sin, and we were transferred his innocence. Now, I'm going to tell you, as sinners, there is a feeling that we have that draws us to God. Because sin separates from God. Sin separates us from God. And as sinners, what really brings us to an altar? We may not recognize it this way, but I'm telling you what drives us to an altar of repentance is the feeling of separation from God. We feel God forsaken. Because of the sin we possess. And in that moment, as our substitute, as our sacrificial lamb, he had to feel what every sinner feels. He had never known sin. And now, all of a sudden, he is, he is taking upon himself every bit of that sin. The holy God of eternity is for the first time feeling what a sinner feels. But I want to tell you, there was more going on than just him feeling God forsaken. There was a purpose behind him saying what he said. I want to explain that. If I say to you, that last Sunday night we sang the song, so you were here, it should be familiar to you. Even if you weren't here, most everybody, this is a familiar song. If I say to you these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, what do you want to say next? Now, how did you know? That's what I was looking for. How did you know that? Huh? Because you know the song. You're familiar with the song. Now, if you'd only heard the song once or twice, you know, you might say, hmm, let's see, now, that sounds familiar. But if you sang it and you knew it, as soon as I said Amazing Grace, you're ahead of me. 
not by force. You're not having to sit there and try to remember. It's familiar enough to you that it just comes. Right? So if I say, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, how did you know that? You know that song, right? That's familiar to you. And I don't have to sit here and wait on you to come up with that next line. When I quote the first line of that psalm, your mind automatically brings back the next line. And I want to tell you, there's something amazing about songs, really. Um, it, it's an amazing thing. Last Sunday night, I was, I was here after everybody else. Um, had left and, and I was locking things up. It was Sunday night, maybe Tuesday night, I, probably Tuesday night. Um, I was here really late and I, uh, when I left, I, I don't even know why, but all of a sudden the words to an old song just, just came to my mind. And I haven't heard this song since I don't even know when. I, I don't know how long it's been since I've heard anybody sing the song. And, um, but the words just started just started flowing through my mind. Um, we will just begin to sing love sweet story. It's a song that the angels cannot sing. I'm redeemed by the blood that he gave me. And 10,000 years or more, I'll reign with him. And I, I haven't heard anybody sing that song in forever. But those words, now I'm telling you, I don't know what I ate for breakfast yesterday. But there's something about those songs that they just come back. And, of course, I'm telling you, men who study this will tell you that your brain processes music in a different area than it processes just words. And that's why people with Alzheimer's who don't remember anybody in the room, you can start singing a song that they've known since a child, and they know every word, and they never miss a beat. Because that stuff is put in a compartment that is unlike anything else. Music has that impact on us. That's why we ought to be careful what kind of music we listen to. I don't understand people that want to call themselves Christians and listen to a bunch of rap where it's nothing but Garbage and filth and cussing and calling ladies bad names and don't shoot me now, don't shoot me. I'm just a messenger. But I understand that and I want to tell you it's going to be lodged in your brain. It's there. Music does that to you. Hallelujah. Now, do you understand that the book of Psalms was not just a book of poems? Do you understand that the book of Psalms, these were songs that were set to music? They didn't just say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They sang. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay? Everything in the book of Psalms, it is a huge songbook. 150 songs in that songbook. 
some written by David, some written by Solomon, some written by Moses, some compiled by Hezekiah. But what a songbook it is. And I'm telling you, the Jews sang these songs regularly. And so I can promise you that if you started out with Psalm 23 and 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, they could join right in without any problem. They sang it, they sang it, they sang it. Now, we know that about Psalm 23. But I want us to go to Psalm 22 this morning. Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm. Why out? No, wait, 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 wait. Read that again. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Do you know that when Jesus was dying on Calvary, He wasn't just screaming out to God as though in accusation that he'd been forsaken. He was there dying, but he was singing a song. And I'm going to tell you that when he started singing that song, every Jew standing around the cross knew the lyrics to that song. Now, why is that important? It's because of what that song says. Let's go on down. In fact, get your Bible. This is Bible study time. This is Bible study time. I want you to see this in your Bibles. Jesus started singing verse 1. I don't know. In fact, Pastor Howard and I discussed this after I preached this at his church. That night we, we were leaving to go out to eat. And he said, you know, he said the Bible doesn't record everything that Jesus said. And he said, I just wonder. If Jesus didn't sing that whole song. I think it's very possible that he did. But whether he sang the whole song or not, I don't know. But I do know this. He didn't have to. Just like I don't have to when I say the Lord is my shepherd. You know, your mind immediately is thinking, uh, leaves me beside green, the, the still waters. He, Makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Right? All those things are going through your mind just because I start quoting the first part of verse 1. The same thing happened to the Jews as Jesus started into Psalm 22. And he gave them the first line of of, of verse 1 of Psalm 22. Look down at verse 6 and start reading. But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men. I'm a reproach of men. Despised I'm the despised people. by the people. All they that see All me laugh they that me to see scorn. me laugh me to scorn. Now get this. They shoot out the lip. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. They saying, shake the head, saying, "He trusted. He on trusted the Lord. on the Lord that he would deliver. That he him. would deliver him. Let him Let deliver him. him. Deliver him. See, he see, delighted, he delighted in him. Now listen." This is in this song. 
that the people who look at me are saying he trusted in God. Let's see if God delivers him now. What were the people at the cross saying? Does anybody remember? Matthew 27 and verse 43 tells us. He trusted in he God. He trusted in God. Let him Let him deliver him. I'm telling you that the very words of that song were coming to pass as Jesus was dying on the cross. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. That's what David said was going to take place. All right? We're not finished. We're not finished. Let's skip on down a little bit here. Let's go down to verse 13. They gabbed unto me with them their mouths as the raven of the roaring lion. I am pour, uh, poured out like I'm water. poured out like water. And all my bones, all my are, bones out of joint. are out of joint. Do you understand what happens when a man is crucified? Do you understand that the way they hang his body on the cross, it's pulling every bone out of its joint? All my bones are out of joint. Read. My heart is like my wax. Heart is like wax. It is melted, in, melted the midst. in the midst of of my, my bowels, read. My strength is, my dried, strength up like is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue, my tongue. my jaws. Hey, 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 hey. What was it he cried from the cross? I thirst. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Read. For dogs For have dogs compassed have me. Compassed me. And assembled of the wicked have enclosed me. The assembly me. of the wicked have enclosed me. Look at this. They pierced they my pierced hands and my feet. hands and my feet. Listen to me, saints. I don't know. I know some of you have heard me teach this before. But for the rest of you, I want you to understand what we're reading in Psalms was written centuries before Calvary took place. And that particular psalm or song recorded exactly what was going to take place at the crucifixion. And when Jesus started singing, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Every Jew standing at that cross remembered. They said he trusted in God. That's what we've been singing. That song says they pierced my hands and my feet. That's what's happened here. We're not finished yet. Let's, let's read on a little farther here. Go on, verses 17 and 18. I may, or I may tell all my bones. They look and stare, look upon, and stare me. upon me. Look they, at this. They part they my part garments, my among, garments them among them and cast lots lot upon my vesture. What was going on at the cross that day? Matthew 27 and 35 says, And they crucified, they crucified him, him and parted his garments, parted casting, his garments lots. casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. I'm telling you that what took place at the cross, everything that the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 22 was happening right before the very eyes of the Jews. And when Jesus started singing that song, it wasn't because one person had forsaken another, but it was his reminder that you get up on Sabbath day and you sing this song, but you didn't even understand what it was you were singing about. You were singing about me, and now you're bringing it to pass. 
I'm telling you, Psalm 22 is a psalm of Calvary. And when Jesus started singing it, he was reminding those Jews, I am your Savior. I am your Messiah. I am the one you were looking for. I'm going to tell you what it was. Yes, they were the ones who were responsible for his death. But even in death, he reached out to them in mercy by taking something familiar to them. I'm going to tell you what he was doing. He was trying to make an altar call. Hey, look, we didn't just make up this custom that when it comes time to close the service, we're going to have an altar call. I'm going to tell you, when it was time for Jesus to close his service, he had an altar call. And he started singing the right song for that altar call. And the song he sang was the song about Calvary. And those Jews, as hard-hearted and as cruel as they were, they were forced, Brother Chad, they were forced to remember this thing was written about hundreds of years ago by no less than King David, our most beloved king, a man we considered to be not just a king, but a prophet. And he told us the very things we were going to be doing today. And we didn't even realize what we've been singing about. I'm telling you, in his love and in his mercy, though they were putting him to death, he was trying to draw them to life. Hallelujah. Now, does everybody agree that Psalm 22 is about the cross? Everybody agrees Psalm, Psalm 22 is about the cross? Let me just forever end this whole argument about whether or not he was forsaken by God. All right, Psalm 22 is about the cross, right? Right? Yeah, it's about the cross. So let's let's end the discussion. Psalm 22, verse 24. For he hath not For despised hath nor not abhorred. Despised nor abhorred the affliction, the affliction of, the afflicted. of the afflicted. Neither, Neither hath he hid, his, hath face he hid his face from him. Don't tell me the Father hid his face from the Son. That's a direct contradiction of what the Scripture says. The Father wasn't hiding his face because the Father was indwelling that fleshly body the whole time that it was going on. And when he cried unto him, and that flesh cried out, the Spirit heard. He wasn't God forsaken. I'm going to tell you, if you've got two persons in a Godhead that are so distinct that one can forsake the other, you don't have one God anymore. Did you hear what I said? I don't care how you try to define it. If one can forsake the other, they are two separate gods. And you have just violated Deuteronomy 6 and 4. You don't have one forsaking the other. Hallelujah. But you have that one, the fleshly body, that was dying. The son was dying. But the spirit was ever present. The spirit didn't die. The Father didn't die. 
The father didn't forsake the son either. That spirit was still indwelling that flesh. Hallelujah. And that spirit was drawing men even as he hung upon Calvary. My time is up. I did it. I knew I could. I knew I could. I knew I could. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let's stand. Sister Becca, come. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm telling you today, church, there is no question in this Bible that you cannot answer if you use the principles I gave you. What do we have here? One person crying out to another? No. We've got flesh crying out to spirit. That's what we've got. And we've got, we've got that eternal spirit on the inside that's reaching for mankind the whole time that the son is on the cross. He's still reaching. He's still reaching. He's still reaching. And I want to tell you, he's reaching today. He's reaching today. He hadn't stopped reaching. That spirit is still alive and well today. And he's in this place. I'm telling you, he's concerned about you, and he cares about you. And that was not just an appeal to the Jews for that day. But one songwriter said this, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. He was thinking about me, too. And he was thinking about you. He wasn't focused on his pain or his suffering. He stayed focused to the very end on his purpose and his mission. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's lift our hands and love him for it right now, can we? Let's love him. Let's love him. The doctrine of the Trinity defines God as three in one. In fact, some of you may have recognized as we were singing today, and I didn't know they were going to sing that song, but as we were singing, How Great is Our God, there were a couple lines in that second verse that we chose to rewrite. Because the original said, the Godhead three in one. Now look, apostolics, we don't believe in three in one. Now that's that's a Trinitarian doctrine. I actually have had I actually I actually had an apostolic preacher tell me one time that's the most oneness song I've heard. So that's not oneness, that's Trinity. We don't believe in three in one. And nowhere does the scripture say that there are three in one. The closest we get is 1 John 5 and 7. That's the closest we get. And it doesn't say there are three in one. What does it say? For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the, Father, the, Word, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost. And these three and are And these three one. not are in one, but these three 
are one. And so we changed it from the Godhead three in one to a more scriptural line that says the Lord our God is one. Hallelujah. Now that's Bible. The Lord our God is one. Not three in one. Oh, hallelujah. Aren't you glad you know him today? Aren't you glad you know who Jesus is? Aren't you glad you know who Jesus is? Come on, let's thank him for the revelation. Let's thank him. Let's thank him. Oh, hallelujah. I want to tell you, that same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead wants to dwell in you. In fact, the Bible says if it doesn't dwell in you, you're not going to be raised from the dead. But if it does dwell in you, it'll quicken your mortal body. Hallelujah. The Lord wants you to be saved. That's why he came in the form of a man. That's why he endured the suffering and shame of the cross. Because he wants you to be saved. He loves you enough to pay the ultimate price to bring you salvation. He died for you and now just asks that you live for him. That's a pretty good trade. That's a pretty good trade. Why don't we gather around the front? Let's thank the Lord for it. Hallelujah.